If you have your Bibles with you or your favorite Bible app, we'll be in Matthew 5, <clears throat> continuing into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24 this morning. 5, 21 through 24. Blake, I was with you as soon as she asked about the sponge. SpongeBob immediately started hitting, especially when the kids were watching. Matthew 5, 21 through 24. If you found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word this morning? May you hear the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We are a people of the Word, and we are a people who have now gathered around Your Word. So we confess that we cannot understand this Word without Your Spirit's guidance, without Your Spirit's uh, understanding that is gifted to us through Him. And so, Lord, may You open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, open every bit of who we are so that we might receive this Word this morning and be a people of the Word and so, Lord, we gather, open us. May we hear with new ears this day what it is that the King has set before us. We offer these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing this message, uh, a story kept creeping up in my mind. It's the story about Dr. Duncan McDougall. Kind of an odd name, but Dr. McDougall uh, is famous in at least the early 1900s for the publication of this paper. Are you ready for this title? Hypothesis Concerning Soul Substance Together with Experimental Evidence of the Existence of Such Substance. Whew, right? Just like a brilliant mind to have a title of a paper that no one else can understand. Dr. McDougall placed, here's, here's his experiment. Let's get to layman's terms for us. He placed six dying patients on, the special, on a special and very sensitive balance and found that at the moment of death, there was a loss of weight that was equal to about three quarters of an ounce or 21 grams. He first considered that the 21 grams could have uh, been the evaporation of moisture from the skin or possibly it could be attributed to the things that are expelled at death. Air loss was a hypothesis that Dr. McDougall considered, but uh, for many reasons he couldn't attribute the 21 grams to the air in the lungs because air doesn't really have any weight. So he found that the most valid conclusion was that the soul weighed 21 grams. In the early 2000s, a movie was uh, carried the same title of 21 Grams. You might have seen it. It follows the story of three main characters. And throughout the film, it asks 
this question to its watchers. What is the value of human life? Or we could say, how much does human life weigh? Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a Sunday that is set aside by several nonprofits as well as churches in America where we remember, where we commemorate the value of human life. And we might quickly associate this day with honoring the unborn, the children in the womb. On top of that, we may even connect Sanctity of Human Life Sunday uh, as a day where we have this stance known as pro-life. But let me say that Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is more than honoring and valuing the life of the womb. That's part of it. It's also certainly bigger than what we call a pro-life stance. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I think if we're biblical and also logical in our understanding of that, is an endorsement. It's a proclamation even of the wonder and the worth of life from womb to tomb. It is a valuing of all life, not just the unborn, but all of life. What we're saying is that all of life at every stage and every chapter of a person's living is acknowledged as beautiful. It's acknowledged as meaningful and even purposeful. So let's look this morning at Jesus' teachings uh, and how he might answer this question. What is the value of human life? So let's look at these. I'm going to break them into two parts, verses 21 and 22, and then we'll go to the second part here in a second of 23 and 24. Let me remind us of what uh, these verses have said. You have heard, Jesus says, that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Twelve times throughout the New Testament, the Greek word for anger appears. And sometimes it does indeed mean the intentional act of killing someone. What we would say murder, excuse me, of, of being angry at somebody and fulfilling that in murdering somebody. But it can't just be limited to this understanding as Jesus makes clear in these verses, notice both what he says and also what he doesn't say. He's not simply stating that murder is an intentional act of killing someone. I think that's part of it. But he's also going much deeper than that. He's saying murder is both fully is the fully grown seeds of hate or hatred or anger. Let me say it like this. Murder begins and it grows from the heart. I think that's what he's doing. And just like Jesus is good at, he gets to the heart of the matter. And it's usually the heart. It is from the heart that anger begins, which leads really to a murderous kind of intentions. And we could see it in this way. The heart is fed with anger and hatred which flowers into ill intentions, maybe even gossip or slander, or possibly even sprouts into 
really devastating acts such as murder itself. But before we go any further, I think it's wise for us to really pause and really reflect for a second because oftentimes when Jesus does teach to those around Him, He wants you to do exactly that. He wants to push back against what it is that you assume and say, I want you to really reflect on what it is that I'm teaching. So let's do that. Let's reflect. Before we're quick to jump or hop on any moral high, uh, high horse of ours and think, well, I've never actually gone out and murdered anybody. I'm not guilty here. In this teaching, Jesus reveals our own moral arrogance. See what He says? He, he, he's saying that you're all guilty of murder. I'm guilty of murder. Why? Because we've hated our brother. Right, siblings? We've hated our sister. We've hated mothers or uncles. We've all hated our closest of friends or even a stranger that we don't really know that well. Yet Jesus doesn't desire for us to just wallow in this kind of self-pity or guilt. Nor does He want us to really stagger in shame. He says, yes, you've hated. Yes, you've slandered. Yes, you've conspired. Yes, you've entertained evil thoughts, but you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You've been set free through Him in order to love your neighbor. You've been set free to enjoy your neighbors and those closest to you. You, you can speak life to them instead of try to figure out slanderous ways to conspire against them. You can discover ways to help them flourish instead of gossip about them. You can even consider this thought that you tell them that they are deeply loved by God. One writer says this, Jesus takes these commands of the law and shows how they provide a blueprint for a way of living. Fully, genuinely, gloriously human. He then adds this, This new way which Jesus had come to pioneer and make possible goes deep down into the roots of our personalities and it produces a different pattern of behavior altogether. In other words, Jesus models for the church this way of sympathy, this way of benevolence. And He provides us also a blueprint. We look at Him as He models these things for us. He's our blueprint for how we are to live out these things and what it is to look like in our daily lives. And He works also in us. He's not just a blueprint, but He's the worker in our lives. He works in us in the deepest levels of who we are to demonstrate this grace, to be able to show empathy, to be able to support others and also have this affectionate neighborliness as well. Our other verses, verses 23 and 24, look with me. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I think Jesus' point is pretty simple. 
Our worship affects our ethics. Our worship affects our ethics. Or how we relate to God influences how we relate to other people. Do you see that connection he's making? How we relate to God influences and affects how we relate to other people. Jesus seems to be saying this, if you are reconciled by God the Father, then you practice this reconciliation in all of your relationships. If the grace and mercy of God has embraced you and it's changing you, then we are to extend this grace in all of our relationships. As one of my professors used to say, the vertical meets the horizontal. God comes and meets with His people so that they can then extend that same love and mercy horizontally towards all the relationships that they have had over the years. But there's something important that we need to know about worship. If you decide one day to bring yourself to the altar to worship here in the pews, or what we call as the actual altar up here, and you know You've hurt a friend or a family member or he or she has hurt you. Then what he's saying is don't even bother of approaching. Don't even bother in raising your Ebenezer, your own sacrifices and offerings. Why? Because worship, how we relate to God is connected to our ethics, how we relate to others. According to Jesus, not only does your worship matter, but so does our ethics. On numerous occasions in the past, if you look through the entirety of the Old Testament, Israel had been guilty of trying to bring their sacrifices to worship God Himself, but they neglected to take care of others that they were possibly extorting, that they were frauding, sometimes the weak, the widow, the orphan, in fact, Amos the prophet has some very stern words for those who have been doing exactly this. He says this in his fifth chapter, and this is God speaking to Israel through the prophet Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring your choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let just, justice roll down like river, righteous like a never-falling stream. You see, worship and ethics are intertwined. How we relate to God and how we relate to others are interconnected. So as we gather as a faith community each Sunday, we're not here just to socialize. Of course, there's socializing involved. We're certainly not here for the gossip, probably not very good gossip anyways that we're, we were to pass around. We're not here on official business, right? Even though there might be business matters that we have things to talk about, uh, there's certain kitchen details that we need to, to discuss. And we're certainly not here to make ourselves feel good. We gather to meet with the King, Sunday in and Sunday out, who has extended this wondrous invitation 
to us as sinful, broken people to worship and to commune with Him, to participate in His goodness and grace. And then, here's the thing, He sends us out of this place into our homes. He sends us out of this place into our neighborhoods, into the countrysides. He sends us out of here into the streets and into our workplaces in order to demonstrate and display this loving kindness of peace of His. Hickory Grove, when we're sent into the world, when we leave out of this place, we are, yes, to exercise this pro-life stance. But I don't think we do this by ranting on Facebook or debating with coworkers about some sort of abortion rights. Don't, don't hear me out. Don't throw me down too quick. I think there's a place for that. I think there's wisdom in when and how to do those things in dialoguing about and discussing these very important topics. Obviously. I'm just not saying I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't discuss abortion. I'm not saying that. I'm just wanting us to see I think a blind spot that the church has missed for several years. If you and I aren't willing to open our homes to mothers, to orphans, to those in the foster care system, or anyone that is in need, then I think our witness has little to no weight. You hear me? It's not to say that there's no place for dialoguing, discussing, and even possibly debating abortion rights. There's a place for it. But if we can't be a people who walk the walk, nobody's going to listen to us. Nobody. Let me say it this way. If we're serious about being pro-life, then we may need to close our mouths more and open our doors of our homes even wider. And I think this begins when we recognize what's going on as we gather on Sundays. I'm sure you've seen it before, and if you haven't, I think this is what I've seen every Sunday as we worship together. When we come together, Christ comes near to us. He promises that. I've seen Him show up on several occasions. Blake's nodding his head too. I've seen Him show up. And He does this to transform us from the inside out. He takes your unholiness and gives you His holiness. He takes your unrighteousness and gives you more of His righteousness. He takes your brokenness and pain and He's making you whole and complete and healed with His peace. And as you give yourself to Him each Sunday, He gives you far more of Himself in return. Worship is like an incubator. It's a space filled with the Spirit of Christ to nurture us, to strengthen us, to sustain and grow us. I think Jenny's lesson was spot on. I mean, we are soaking in the presence of God right now. And let us continue to soak in the richness of that presence each time we gather. But here's the thing. We're not meant to stay in incubators. That's a temporary time. We're there in that incubator. We're here in worship for just a little while in order to be sent into the world to be 
now nurtured, now strengthened, now sustained and grown to display the Father's love that He has towards the world. So yes, I think worship directly affects our ethics. How we relate to God influences how we relate to others. A few final thoughts this morning. And this is where I think we apply directly the lesson that Jesus has been teaching us through these four or five verses to our own lives. We translate it in these ways. If we think about being pro-life, and don't throw me under the bus yet, hear me out. If we think that being pro-life is merely about voting for the pro-life politician or policy, if we think that being pro-life is merely about giving money to our local pro-life pregnancy agencies, if we think that being pro-life is merely about voicing our convictions about the murder of innocent ba uh, babies, then we're wildly naive. You notice I said merely. If it's just those things we failed. Yes, voting one's conscience is a public and political good. Do it. Please do it. Yes, giving generously to pregnancy agencies is excellent. We do it here every single year. We're going to continue doing it. Yes, expressing one's beliefs about the human being in the womb is virtuous. Let us continue to be that voice. But these shouldn't be the only, hear it, the only standards of what it means to be, quote, pro-life. As we've seen this morning, Jesus seems to be setting a different model for his followers to live by. First, being pro-life is an attitude, it's a disposition of our hearts. A reordering, a reorienting of our hearts by the Spirit. If murder is, according to Jesus, not only the intentional killing of a human being, but it really is set in hatred then we have a different standard by which we are to live and to be in our world. Translated into our own life, this means Jesus is transforming the way that you and I value and we appreciate people. When He's changing and reorienting our hearts, we realize that people aren't just meat. We realize that people aren't just some sort of clump of cells. We realize that human beings are never people to be used to meet our own needs. That there's so much more than that. In whatever stage of life that we see another human being, we as the church, we acknowledge this, that people are inherently valuable. We don't put meaning on them. They have meaning. They possess meaning. That they're wildly loved as well that they're absolutely beautiful and how God has created them. And they're soaked in meaning and in purpose. We're seeing human beings as made in God's image and likeness. Not only is being pro-life an attitude and disposition of the heart, it, it's not just an idea or stance or position as well. And I think we've missed that a lot is that we think pro-life is just a stance. I think it's so much bigger than that. If we're going to be uh, seeing pro-life, I think we have to see it much more expansive than an idea. 
Yes, it's a way of seeing the world. We see people as valuable and loved. But we also see pro-life as an entire way of life. It's a way in which we orient our daily lives. So to be pro-life is to treat each and every human being with respect, with gratitude, with even great care. This, I think, prompts the church. It pushes us as a people who are not only willing, but ready to open their hands and even their homes to battered women, to orphaned children, and yes, even hungry strangers. We have to be willing to be both. Let me see if I can hit a little bit closer to home. I think being pro-life as a way of life means that we speak to and we even treat our children, our spouses, and I think our own selves the way that Scripture sees us. And if, as I was reminded this past week in a book I was reading, I came across this quote. It says this, Inactive or idle love is an illusion. Love is active, church. If we're not moving and showing the world the way that Christ has loved us, if we're not moving and doing this, it's an illusion. We're just putting on a show for ourselves. Love does. If there's one thing you see throughout the entirety of the Scriptures is that love does. That word agape. It is a selfless, sacrificial love. It means it moves. It has movement and it does things. So pro-life, really, at the end of the day, end of the day and this is when I talk to friends who might be resistant of a pro-life stance or a pro-life way of life, I say this, at the end of the day, pro-life is really pro-love. At the end of the day, it is pro-love. What the church, I think, is saying today on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and every other day throughout the year is this, every single human being is created by God in order to receive the love of God. Do you hear me? That every single human being is created by God in order to receive the love of God. I think that's a beautiful, I think it's a very powerful affirmation and confession of the church. And it's okay, let me say this, it's okay for us to be bold in that statement. That we say, you are created by God and you are loved by God. Now receive that love. But by bold, I don't mean for us to be arrogant in what we're saying. I don't think in being bold that we're disrespectful in what we're saying. I think we hold Paul's wisdom as he says to the Ephesian church, speak the truth in love. Or even Peter's uh, own advice that he has to the church that he wrote to. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks this. But do it with what? Gentleness and respect. I think what we have to have is what some call courageous convictions about being pro-life. Let we're to be courageous in being a voice for the voiceless, but it's not to be a voice only for the unborn. Again, to be pro-life is to be a courageous voice for every single human being from womb to tomb. 
We're also a people of convictions, which means we don't remain just a voice to the voiceless. We remain a voice, but we're also a heart. We're a conscience. We're a hug. We're a home. We're a friend and even a shoulder in times of need. I think Dr. Duncan McDougall that we began with this morning missed something very profound in his own scientific investigation of the soul and especially trying to weigh the soul, and it's this. Human life is far heavier, we could say, than the 21 grams of the soul. It is far heavier than that. Because if you've ever lost somebody you love, it's far heavier than 21 grams. So here's the invitation, I think, that Christ has for us this morning, if you want to demonstrate your courage for being pro-life, look deeply into the eyes of someone this week as they speak to you. One of the most humane acts that you can ever do is to look at somebody in their eyes and to talk to them, to listen to them. I mean, really look into their eyes. If you want to show your convictions about the weightiness of life, I think we embrace our own babies and grandbabies this week. And we whisper into their ears, you are loved. If you want to display the tenderness of Christ this week, here's one I'm going to push you on. Invite the single, pregnant, and scared soon-to-be mom and love her by feeding her, listening to her worries, and promise to be with her during and after the pregnancy. Whew. Then and only then, in a number of other ways, do I think our American culture will begin taking seriously the church. And one of her most courageous and convictions of loving every human being from womb until tomb. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the mercy and the goodness of Your grace this morning because as we all know that this is a message that is not simple. This is not uh, an easy topic, especially the world in which we live. To be able to say that we're pro-life, I think, Christ, You hit the nail on the head is that it is about being pro-love that we see people as created by You. They're created for You. They're created to receive the love of You. And that we see every single human being as intrinsically beautiful, full of worth and purpose and meaning. And most important of all, they're created in Your image and likeness, God. And so... I think we have to get rid of an idea that being pro-life is just about a baby in a womb. As beautiful as they are, as wonderful as they are, and we have to see it in a bigger picture, a picture that I think the Scriptures paint, is that all of human life is soaked with Your presence, that all of human life is meant to glorify and worship You, no matter how evil they might be. They are loved. Because you remind us that the sun rises on both the good 
and the evil. And that, Lord, forgive us of even in our own hearts committing murder. Because we're all guilty of hating somebody. Of disregarding another human being. Overlooking and neglecting a human being. And I think because of that, we can say we're sorry. And we realize that we have oftentimes... We have turned inward towards ourselves and we try to say, look, I've never done anything too evil. But Father, your son reminds us that it is not about just the act of hurting somebody. It is the very heart and posture that we treat people. And so may we have your heart, O Christ. May we have your presence. And as we look at people this week, may we have a transformation of eyes that we see them as you see them and that we treat them as you have treated them and that we love them as you have loved them. And maybe even this week, we tell somebody exactly those words that after we shake their hand or we give them a hug, we tell them that they are loved. I mean, how radical that is to just tell somebody in this day and age that they're loved. And so, Father, we come before you acknowledging our brokenness and our pain and, and oftentimes our inability to love people that you've loved us. And so, Father, change our way of life. Change our hearts and our, and our eyes to see people differently this week and that we see all of life truly soaked in your presence. Father, we offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.